Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, we are speaking to somebody that has taken NBA history and turned it on its head. Yes, I'm speaking to Teresa Runstetler about her new smash book, which is receiving an enormous amount of play. It's called Black Ball, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Spencer Haywood, and the generation that saved the soul of the NBA. In this book, Runstetler takes the period of the 1970s and argues that far from being the decade that almost killed the league before, according to popular history, it was revived by Magic, Larry, Michael, and Commissioner David Stern, that we couldn't imagine today's NBA without the style, flair, labor militancy, and unapologetic blackness of the 1970s. It's quite a thesis. It is really spinning a lot of brains, and we are thrilled to have her here on the show. And my goal is to not ask her questions she has heard a million times. That's the goal. Here she is, Teresa Runstetler. Hey, Teresa, is that you? Yes, it is. First of all, my goodness, talking to me twice in three days, I really... (laughs) I know. I didn't know if um, you were actually going to be on the show the other day. So that was a pleasant surprise. Well, I was 50-50 for it. And Chuck was so stoked to talk to you. I just hoped you would uh, grant me <laughs> the, the, the double <laughs> here. I, I really do appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So this is what I'm going to do. Uh, we're already recording. Is that okay? Yeah, sure. That's fine. Great. Um I've everybody already... else is out of the house, so yeah. that kicks everybody out. <laughs> no, I mean, I have a 18 and a 14 year old, so while the memories are are real, I'm glad to sort of be past the the constant chaos period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we just got a new puppy as well, so okay. yeah. <laughs> so wow. it's like a perfect storm right now. Wow. Well. I'm going to, um, I've already introduced you and whatnot. Um, but so what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to read a portion of what I've already read in my nice podcast voice, just so you hear how I'm introducing you. And then I'm just going to ask you the first question. Sure. All right. So we'll get started. In this book, Ron Stetler takes the period of the 1970s and argues that far from being the decade that almost killed the league before, according to popular history, it was revived by Magic Larry Michael and Commissioner David Stern, that we couldn't imagine today's NBA without the style, flair, labor militancy, and unapologetic blackness of the 1970s. And this thesis of Ron Stetler's is spinning heads. We are thrilled to have her on the show. My modest goal is to not ask her questions she has heard a million times. Teresa Runstetler. Thanks so much for joining us, Teresa. Thanks so much for having me on. It's always a pleasure talking to you. It is. It is. And I, I sort of already have lied on this interview. I've, I've been mendacious because I probably will ask you a couple of questions that you've heard a million times. So I, I beg your dispensation before we start. Oh, that's totally fine. I've got my coffee and I'm ready to go. Because I'm fascinated by how you came to write Black Ball, as well as your narrative about your personal relationship with hoops. And I'm hoping we can start off by you speaking about that. Sure. Um, Well, back in the mid to late 90s, I was actually a member of the Toronto Raptors dance pack, Mm -hmm. now now known as the Northside Crew. Um, So I came into the NBA family as part of game operations, as they call it, part of the entertainment that happens on the sidelines and then also on the court in between the play. And so from that vantage point, I got to see behind the veil of NBA productions and how things work. And, you know, I was kind of a, and still am a very quiet person and tend to observe rather than talk most of the time. And even in my early 20s, I saw, uh, you know, where the NBA or an NBA franchise um, thought their money should go, Um, you know, what it thought of the dancers in terms of our compensation and, and how we were treated and how we were marketed to the fans. I also saw uh, through the players' own struggles, uh, we would see them out and about in Toronto, um, their own 
opinions on the NBA and what it meant to be a professional athlete. So in that sense, I felt like I had a little bit of a window onto how professional sports worked in a way that, you know, most, most folks don't get that chance to, to see behind the veil. I mean, not just most folks, but also most writers, most academics. I mean, you see, I think that's one of the things about the book that's really striking from the beginning is that you really do come at this uh, with no illusions about the league. Like you see it very starkly as a business from someone who's seen it from the inside. And I feel like that informs your entire thesis. Would, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, part of it is my training in critical race theory. <laughs> Those things that are so, so controversial these days. Um, and also in African-American history and understanding what happened in the 1970s for Black folks, you know, well, more that broadly gets speaking. Oh, sorry. I mean, <laughs> but yeah, like, I mean, that's a whole other story that's also connected to the book. Um, but, you know, as a dancer, I saw all sorts of things, you know, when we first started uh, dancing, uh, the Toronto Raptors were in their first few seasons um, under uh, the leadership of GM Isaiah Thomas, uh, we had a kind of revolving cast of owners, and it really felt like this new venture, almost like a startup we were, you know, pushing the boundaries on what it meant to be a dance team. We had men and women on the team. We wore, you know, hip hop clothing of the 1990s, mm-hmm. everything from coveralls to um, bandanas. But then when the team uh, became much more established and moved into its new arena with the, uh, you know, new owners, Maple Leaf Sport and Entertainment, things got much more corporate. And you could see even in how they were marketing the dance team, you know, cleaning us up, so to speak, and having us dance to Motown instead of Busta Rhymes, you could really get a sense of the underlying, you know, racial and labor politics that suffused the entire NBA production. Mm. So how did you come to see the 1970s as a critical incubator for the modern game, because that is not a a widely available thesis for understanding the NBA. So uh, I've I've mentioned this before. I think I mentioned it in uh, when we spoke a few days ago. I actually started all of this research with Len Bias in 1986. I was doing a project looking at Uh, his death from a cocaine overdose shortly after being drafted NBA uh, with the Boston Celtics and how his death and his imagery as a young black man with a a, purportedly with a drug problem, um, you know, really helped to push along Reagan's War on Drugs, the omnibus legislation from 1986. And I thought to myself, this is really interesting because what I knew of Bias's story was that he was, you know, not the prototypical uh, black basketball player from the quote unquote inner city, um, that he had actually grown up in suburban Maryland, um, that he was not really known for you know, being a a troublemaker. And so I wanted to know why was it that folks jumped so quickly to that image of the drug-addled Black athlete? Um, And as I went back in time to figure out the prehistory to that moment, I started to notice that this had actually been a long-standing racial narrative about Black athletes, and in particular about Black basketball players at the pro level, since the early 1970s. Um, and as I started to track that story, I couldn't help but think about the fact that this was also in the moment when uh, the league was becoming demographically Black, you know, it became majority Black in the 1970s. And it also happened to coincide with rising salaries in uh, professional sports, more broadly speaking, but particularly in the NBA. 
And those rising salaries came out of players being able to leverage the competition between the NBA's rival, the American Basketball Association, um, really up until the merger between the two leagues in 1976, and all of the various uh, antitrust fights and labor struggles that happened in the early 1970s. So for me, it was the story of Black players coming into the league, refusing to accept the racial and labor status quo. Um, you know, and this made not only team owners and league officials uneasy, it also made white fans very uneasy about the future of the game. And so this narrative of decline in the 1970s for me was much more of a racialized narrative than it was the actual story of, of what happened in the 70s because so many uh, amazing um, transformations happened in the 70s, whether it was uh, in terms of you know, their labor rights, in terms of the style of play on the court, um, and all sorts of other ways that Black players were bringing you know, their, their sense of defiance, I think that was derived from both their experiences growing up uh, in or during the civil rights movement and black power eras. Um, so for me, that was the story. Um, the other story was just a distraction <laughs> from that uh, much more, um, I think, triumphant narrative in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that narrative for a second, because the NBA's narrative is that the 1970s was actually the story of a league on its deathbed. You, know, you always hear about the 79 finals being shown on tape delay. And then the 80s revives the league. Now, you're, you're standing that on its head. Why does the NBA so aggressively promote this narrative that their own league was on death's door in the 70s, which isn't something you'd, I don't think you'd ever hear baseball or football doing, for example. And then this story of redemption and revival in the 80s. Why are they so wedded to that narrative? Oh, geez. Um, you're asking me to think about their motivations. I apologize. Um, <laughs> I, can, I, can, uh, I can guess um, yeah, as, as guess a historian way. who's sort of thinking about, you know, how institutions... Uh, create their own memories and those memories, they mean a lot in terms of how they market themselves to fans. So for me, the, part of this narrative of the NBA being on its deathbed came out of the labor struggles. Mm. In order for them to successfully fight back or attempt to fight back all of, uh, for example, the antitrust cases, and in particular, um, Oscar Robertson et al. v. the NBA, which really took aim at the reserve system in the NBA, the, the system that kept players tied to one team for their entirety of their career. There was no free agency at that time. In order to make the argument that you know, they deserve to have this power over players and that they needed to merge with the American Basketball Association, particularly when the two leagues went before uh, lawmakers in D.C. and were trying to argue for an antitrust waiver. Part of the argument for them was to say, look, we are literally on death's doorstep. And if you don't give us this power, over the players, the league will die. And they, you know, tried to claim that all of the teams were uh, not making any money, that uh, they were paying increasingly exorbitant and unfair salaries to these rookies um, who were coming into the league. Um, and that their payrolls were just too large. So they needed to have a way to keep uh, player power and, and uh, you know, player salaries under control. And that has, you know, remained the narrative. I think anytime contract talks come up, whether it's over, 
you know, the CBA or it's a question of, you know, uh, in the case of the subsequent lockouts in, you know, the late 90s and the early 2000s and 2010s, it's constantly the narrative that they're bringing out that, oh, geez, you know, we need to maintain this control over the players or the league will fall apart. So mm-hmm. part of that, I think, came out of the labor struggles and has continued to be a kind of narrative that comes up um, in in subsequent uh, labor struggles. Um, I think also, too, part of it is, you know, in blaming the players about um, or for bringing down the league or causing this decline of, you know, the NBA in the 1970s, they essentially sidestep any culpability that management and team owners had in creating what I um, argue was a kind of speculative bubble in basketball in the late 70s. There were too many teams. There were teams that were in markets that just could not support them. Um, There were teams that were being horribly mismanaged. the players themselves were pointing this out, but but of course nobody listened to them. And so it has been this way of sidestepping, I think, their own culpability in, you know, suppressing player power and then also mismanaging their own franchises. Mm-hmm. I think the appeal, like on the flip side of that, in marking the 80s as the moment of redemption, is the fact that we have a couple of white hopes who come into the league, you know, one in the form of Larry Bird, the other in the form of David Stern. Um, And, you know, that has been part of the spinning of the NBA story as this league that can appeal to everyone. Um, So you, you can appeal to the folks who will, you know, embrace somebody like Larry Bird. But on the other hand, we're also embracing Magic Johnson. So we're simultaneously, you know, leaning into and trying to market a particular form of blackness that is cool, fun to watch, but not necessarily political. Mm. Um, so for me, it's, it's, it's about a couple of different things um, in terms of how they're spinning that story and spinning their own history. Now, if there's a critical character in your book that's not sentient, it's the character of cocaine. And right. <laughs> how it, you know, cocaine is a character in your book and uh, how its existence was weaponized against NBA players, the very existence and proliferation of cocaine in the culture. Could you speak about that? Yeah, and I, I want to make clear that I'm not saying in any way shape or form that no basketball players were using cocaine but rather you know questioning I mean what young person with a fabulous amount of wealth um, in the late 70s and early 80s was not doing cocaine right I think like three Mormons (laughs) so I mean I was too young I was too young at that time to partake but you know, we know from the pop culture of the time that this was something that was endemic in Wall Street culture. It was part of, you know, white celebrity culture in Hollywood. We know that it was part of the jet setter culture. And yet for me, what struck me was the fact that the NBA became the target of this really intense moral panic. And this was right before the emergence of crack cocaine, which was the cheaper form of Coke. Once Coke started flooding the US market in the early to mid eighties, and then folks figured out a way to distribute it much more cheaply, then it became imagined as a black drug. But in the moment that you know I was writing about in Black Ball, this was essentially a white drug. Um, And so 
for many folks who already assumed that Black players were earning too much, that they were bringing the league down, you know, that they were chaotic, that they were criminal, that they were violent, this was just the icing on the cake to that narrative. Um, and it became, I think, the way that we understand that moment in NBA history. Um, and, you know, the league's reaction was to try and, and mitigate um, and, you know, mitigate the harm of that to their reputation and then also show fans that, you know, we're taking care of it and we still are a family friendly form of entertainment that you can bring your white suburban family to. Um, so, yeah, I mean, but it, it it's all throughout the book, which I found really striking when I started to look back into the archives that, you know, these pretext stops of black basketball players who would have been young men driving around in nice cars, um, you know, that they were getting caught with small, you know, amounts of cocaine. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was so interesting that the players themselves were saying, well, look, we just came out of college. And if anyone knows about college culture and the counterculture in the late 60s and early 70s, everybody on campus was doing drugs too, particularly marijuana. Um, so they were kind of confused as to why the league was, you know, be becoming more and more um, concerned about drug use in the league. And, and they created this kind of carceral apparatus of hiring former FBI agents to track players. Yeah, yeah. That, so that was one of the things reading the book that was gobsmacking. Um, almost because it, it felt prefigurative to me of the carceral state we live in now. And I mean, maybe not fully prefiguratively, but, you know, basically transferring what they were already doing in certain sectors of society, particularly mm -hmm. in, in um, you know, poverty stricken black neighborhoods, they had been doing this since, you know, the 1960s, and we're now sort of taking uh, that apparatus and using it on the players, but doing it in such a way that, you know, they weren't really trying to hide, hide it. That's the other thing that I found quite stunning was that, you know, they were very open about the fact that they had these agents in various cities, NBA cities, and that they were charged with following up on any rumors about the players in terms of their you know, off-court dalliances, um, drug use, et cetera. And so, you know, it, it became this kind of incursion into their private lives. And maybe that's the, the prefigurative part, the kind of level of surveillance and policing of, of workers in particular who are actually not even on the job. Um, you know, drug testing became a part of that belatedly. Um, but, you know, I think the establishment of the security network really opened up um, racial profiling of professional athletes in new ways. Um, and yeah, there were all of these reports in the New York Times and other newspapers where the NBA was basically saying, look, hey, everyone, we have a security network and we are you know, keeping on top of this. We are making sure that we're keeping basketball safe for you and your family. Mm. I'm going to ask you something and then just under a broad umbrella, and I want you to tell me what, what comes to your mind. If, if I say I want to understand the, the actors at play who were at the forefront of the political, symbolic, labor, and Black militancy as expressed in the NBA of the 1970s. Who are a couple of the players who first leap to your mind? Uh, well, we can start with the, the folks in the subtitle of the book, uh, Kareem oh, Abdul-Jabbar um, being one of them, and uh, Spencer Haywood being the other. I think Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, for me, he was the epitome of an athlete who came of age 
during the civil rights movement, was in college during the height of black power and what um, Harry Edwards called uh, the revolt of the black athlete or the wave of boycotts um, and various protests amongst particularly college students or uh, college athletes in the late 1960s leading up to the uh, infamous uh, 1968 um, protest at the Mexico Olympics. So he came of age in that ferment and brought a lot of that defiance, that attitude, that sense of his own power as an athlete um, into the NBA and was not afraid to just be himself. He wasn't trying to placate white reporters uh you know if he, he didn't want to talk he would give you a one word answer or a grunt um he didn't really care about playing to white fans and acting submissive um and he was not afraid to to stand up for himself um and didn't want to be seen just as an athlete uh, as somebody who didn't think, didn't have an opinion on anything. Um, so for me, he encapsulates that transition from the earlier moment in, in bringing that, um, you know, political activism from the late 60s into the league of the 1970s and really reshaping what it meant to be a Black athlete. Mm. No, I hear that. Um you know, I've spoken to Kareem about this, and I'm curious about your response, is that sometimes the intersection of Kareem in the 1970s relative to who he was in 68 and relative to who he's become in recent years uh, can feel a little underwhelming, partly mm -hmm. because he was feeling disengaged from the game and feeling disengaged for a lot of reasons, various religious, right. political, personal, like his 70s were pretty pretty darn tormented, but you're saying that just the fact that he was Kareem and mm -hmm. winning all those MVPs, that that had a ripple effect of confidence on players like, the, let's say, the Spencer Haywoods of the world. Yeah, and, and like Kareem, I think just by being Kareem, even off the court, so not necessarily out there protesting everything, but just being himself, which, mm -hmm. you know, he was an introverted um, guy who, who thought deeply about many different things. He had critiques of the system, which he would choose to share when he decided that he wanted to share them. Um, but he wasn't trying to again, play up to these normative standards of what people expected of Black athletes uh, mm -hmm. from an earlier generation to be submissive, to be kind, to be, um, you know, apolitical, to be uh, grateful. He was none of those things. Um, yeah. Wow. And, so and this is this politics of being, literally, even if he wasn't, you know, at the forefront of the labor struggles, I think was an important modeling um, for subsequent athletes. Yeah, it's rare air, but there are those athletes who, when we say that phrase, the politics of being, it really does have an impact on, on the people around them who might be more explicitly political in a given time. I like that. I might, I might have to use that, Teresa. <laughs> really good. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, certainly with Spencer Haywood, part of the way that he comes into being, you know, this huge star in the late 60s was that Kareem didn't go to the Olympics, right? right? So he got a shot at the, the Mexico Olympics and he becomes politicized through his treatment, his horrible treatment in both the ABA and the NBA. Um, so he's another one who didn't, you know, he could have very easily just sat back and said, oh, well, I signed a horrible contract with, uh, you know, Denver, and maybe now I just have to lie in it and accept it. But he mm -hmm. didn't. He sought out help from an agent 
and went to the courts to argue that the, the you know, the contract was fraudulent. Um, so that in and of itself takes a lot of courage because there was immense blowback against him for taking that stand. You know, Teresa, a lot of brilliant books come out of the, the Sports Scholar Academy on a given basis in a, in a year, more than I can certainly read. And your book, though, seems to have really struck a chord and gotten more publicity, more shine than well beyond what is typical from books that come from that particular space with a, that particular analysis. Other than, and you know, hey, if you want to say it's because of the brilliance of the prose and that's all there is to it, uh, then feel <laughs> free. It's your answer. But I wanted to ask you why you think it struck such a chord. Oh, gosh. I mean, I, I think I've told you this before. It shocked me because, you know, I'm a historian, um, you know, in, within the historical profession, sports history is not the most respected field always. Um, and then when you move into more of the, you know, popular press world, it's the journalists who I think write a lot of the best sports books, you know, no, no offense to the rest of my colleagues. Um, but often the journalists, because you know how to tell stories, um, you know, you are the ones who have those breakthrough books. I, I mean, I think it's maybe we're, it's about the moment that's surrounding the book mm. in part, you know, there's so much going on in the world of sport right now, I mean, there always is a lot going on in the world of sport, but we, I think, are taking notice of it mm -hmm. largely because of the intersections between pro sport, both men's and women's, um, and Black Lives Matter. In years, we're taking notice because of what happened during the pandemic, um, particularly in the NBA bubble. Um, and we want to understand where that activism came out of and why the players in, for example, the NBA are able to say things that folks in the NFL are not able to say. Um, so I think that it, 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 you know, the book attempts to give a kind of explanation for some of those present day questions. Um, I mean, I also try to really foreground foreground what the athletes themselves said mm -hmm. um, and also set the story against a wider backdrop so that we understand that what's happening in in the sporting arena, whether it's on the court or on the field or in the boxing ring, that it has reverberations that go throughout the rest of society. It doesn't just reflect what's going on in society, but it often produces the kinds of racialized narratives that then become uh, you know, the logic underpinning a lot of policies that we see. So for me, you know, I'm trying to tell a story of sport, but simultaneously also trying to tell the story of society. Um, so I don't know if that's, I don't know, your guess is as good as mine, but I think we're also in a moment right now where folks are primed um, and, and primed for these types of stories and, and really searching for answers. Definitely. Um, my own personal theory, strictly from the, from the lens of basketball, is I think some of it is that the NBA really has tried to play up this people power image our player power, I should say, image that's being projected from the commissioner's office. And that has seen some big cracks in recent years, post-bubble. The mm -hmm. whole NBA is all on the same page, Black Lives Matter and all of that, the referees marching in the bubble and all of that. I feel like we've seen some pretty big cracks in recent years. And I think what your book does is sort of call out some of the bullshit as far as what the league is and how it's historically operated and what its narratives have historically been. And I think yeah. that's powerful and also a very important contribution. So great job. 
<laughs> Thank you. I mean, you know, Dave, when I first started writing this book and I started telling folks about the fact that this is what I was writing about, you know, how black players transformed the league in the 1970s and talking about the racism in the league, they were kind of like, well, wait a second. The NBA is so progressive. There you go. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Um, okay. But why? If, if it is, if we're if we're gonna grant it that it is progressive, maybe in comparison to the racial politics, at least the sort of public racial politics of some of the other leagues. Well, then why is that? And mm. I think actually that can be explained largely because of the tradition of um, the NBPA, the union, being an organized force that the the team owners and league officials know that they can't ignore. Mm. Do you have any thoughts about the legacy of the 70s and the recent collective bargaining agreement that earlier this week was discussed that includes some really interesting provisions like total pullback from marijuana testing and for the first time giving players the right to actually buy into franchises and buy into minority ownership positions? You know, all of this to me um, speaks to, again, the power of the MBPA to really kind of counterbalance some of the power of the team owners and league officials. Um, it's interesting that, you know, marijuana has come into this because, uh, you know, the period that I'm looking at in the seventies, they actually didn't care about marijuana at all. Interesting. Really? Like there, I, oh, geez, I'm trying now digging back into the memory banks of, of when I was writing this, but Kareem, I believe it was Kareem. He has this um, anecdote in his memoir where he talks about the fact that he went to a white player's party and the guy literally had like bales of marijuana <laughs> and everybody was smoking and, you know, it was common knowledge that, players used to go to each other's hotel rooms to, you know, have a joint um, in the seventies and the league didn't really care about that. But what they did care about was cocaine because of the perception of it. They really only cared about drug use by players when it became an image is issue, when it got out into the public Um so I think that that's interesting that now I'm wondering if they are also trying again to sort of prefigure uh, a, a, what should be a policy change across the nation in that there should not be policing of marijuana, that we should actually legalize it. Um, and, you know, like so many other countries have, have, have done um, in order to you know, chip away at the, the carceral state that we've built on the backs of, of those who have had marijuana convictions. Um, I do also think this, this, this provision for players to buy into franchises is really interesting. The period that I was looking at in the 70s, there really wasn't any meaningful black ownership at all. For the most part, the, the, the owners, the major, all of the majority owners were white. Um, and there was a, a big critique also of what Reverend Jesse Jackson at the time called vertical segregation in the sports industry, whereby now you had increasing numbers of black athletes on the field or on the court. And yet, as soon as you went up the ranks in terms of administration, it became lily white. And so that's why somebody like Simon Gordine, who um, became the deputy commissioner of the NBA in um, the 70s, you know, the fact that he was the highest ranking black sports administrator in all of North American sports um, simultaneously showed that there, it was possible for um, African-Americans to enter the inter the inner sanctum of, of the NBA and do good work, but also it, it exposed the fact that he was 
the only guy um, in the NBA's uh, league office. So in some ways, I think that's the next frontier mm. in terms of integration. Because um, really, I think what I'm what I'm tracking in the book is the process of racial integration of the NBA. Um, and it, it's been an uneven racial integration, and it's had, you know, all sorts of problems associated with it. Um, it's still an unfinished project. Uh, I think ownership is is one of those things. Um, and but yeah, it's it's just interesting that 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 you know that has become something that the players actually want written into their collective bargaining agreement. Yeah, and it's but it's also some of the discussions I'm having. There's also people are raising if this is being put into blunt some of the BLM militancy mm-hmm. in years. Absolutely, like, yeah. Trying to just ingest <laughs> players as opposed to yeah you know, treating them like labor, like treating them as potential management. Um, yeah. And I, I think there was a critique at the time. Um, so for example, when Oscar Robertson and uh, the players in the NBPA were trying to get rid of the reserve clause, um, there was an, you know, black journalist um, writing at the time who said, oh gosh, you know, like, why should we care about these athletes who are already making you know, relatively speaking, tons of money trying to integrate into a system that has no love for us, that doesn't change uh, the condition of, you know, the majority of Black people in this country. This is a failed endeavor. You could have started your own independent league. Why didn't you do that? So I think that there's always been this tension of, is it really integration that you want? Is it you know, is it that the players should have more control because the players in the end are the ones who make the game? Um, and all the folks have opinions all across that spectrum. Exactly. Well, Teresa, you've, you've been so generous with your time. Um, before you go, something we always ask folks on the pod is about music and what music they might have been listening to during whatever project they've been involved with that we're discussing. Uh, so what was Teresa Runstetler's soundtrack for writing Black? <laughs> oh my gosh, this is going to be the most boring answer, Dave. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Those are sometimes the best answers. Yeah, so I am one of those people who cannot listen to music with lyrics when I'm writing. Otherwise, I cannot process mentally. Okay. That's cool. So um, I got really into... Um, you know, a lot of instrumental house music. Mm. There's there's this one, um, he's a Canadian DJ. I think he's out of Montreal, DJ Jabig, who I listen to a lot on YouTube. He has his own YouTube channel. I've also recently got into, I don't know if you've ever heard this binaural beats. No. Have you ever heard of what those are? So if you have attention problems, which clearly I do, um ADHD or any other kind of um neurodivergence it actually they help to focus your mind it's it's and I swear it works <laughs> uh, given my recent battle writer's block I'm going to take that very seriously I, I'll send you some links I will Please send you do. some links but yeah like I said it's it's not, nothing um exciting I don't know. I mean, you, you might have just uh, inadvertently delivered me a game changer for my own project. So I'm very <laughs> grateful for the answer. Uh, Teresa, thanks so much for joining us here on the Edge of Sports podcast. Thanks so much, Dave. It was my pleasure. Uh, we'll be right back after a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. 
This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now, I've got some choice words I mean, hell, everyone else has talked about it. I might as well, too, with my own little edge of sports spin about Caitlin Clark, Angel Reese, LSU, Iowa, the entire imbroglio that resulted from one of the great games in the history of modern sports. Okay, look, in a less sexist version of this country, we would all be talking about the number 9.9 million. That was the size of the television and streaming audience watching the NCAA Women's Basketball Finals between Iowa and victorious LSU. It was 12.6 million at its peak, and that's more than watched the World Series. One wonders if in the wildest dreams of Lucia Harris and Nancy Lieberman, they ever saw a day when the game they made would be relished by so many. And yet in these ailing United States, the commentariat has spent days in highly overheated fashion debating whether LSU star Angel Reese, a black woman, should have made a you-can't-see-me gesture to Iowa's galactically talented guard Caitlin Clark, who is white, as the fourth quarter clock wound down. The gesture is one Clark has made famous in hoop circles by using in previous games. I don't want to rehash what happened next loathsome right-wing men mostly white profanely criticizing reese reese standing up for herself with raw explicitly anti-racist confidence more rage than ensuing because she refused to buckle jill biden's tin ear when she initially broke tradition by inviting both teams to the white house something that might have offended iowa more than lsu more rage more hot air and in what felt like a coordinated effort from the most wretched corners of the sports commentariat, people who two weeks ago did not know who Clark was, rushing to her defense and attempting to turn her into their latest fragile white martyr, a casualty of the confidence of a black woman, a confidence that they wanted to break. The ugliness of it all, bizarrely, is a testament to the greatness of Reese and Clark, their respective teams in Baton Rouge and Iowa City, and that number, 9.9 million. This game mattered, and that made right-wing parasites attach themselves like barnacles to the conversation. That they had never before expressed any interest in women's sports beyond efforts to keep trans kids off their teams was a detail left out by many of the think pieces that followed. But now that the aforementioned hot air has largely passed, there is a lesson in all of this that's worth teasing out. The reason this story is petering out is quite simply that Clark was not willing to play the right wing's game. In a country where a killer like Kyle Rittenhouse can make a living by showing up for photo ops at closed door conferences, there is profit in playing to right wing grievances. But when Clark was asked repeatedly whether she wanted an apology from Reese or to have Iowa visit the White House with LSU, her responses gave no quarter to the idea that Reese did anything wrong or that Clark needed support from anyone who thinks she did. I don't think Angel should be criticized at all, said Clark. I'm just one that competes and she competed. I think everybody knew there was going to be a little trash talk in the entire tournament. It's not just me and Angel. We're all competitive. We all show our emotions in a different way. You know, Angel is a tremendous, tremendous player. I have nothing but respect for her. I love her game, the way she rebounds, scores the ball. It's absolutely incredible. I'm a big fan of her and even the entire LSU team. They played an amazing game. When asked by ESPN if Iowa would accept Jill Biden's invitation to the White House, she said, that's for LSU. They should enjoy every single second of being the champion. I think that's theirs to do. I don't think runner-ups usually go to the White House. LSU should enjoy that moment for them. And congratulations, obviously. They deserve to go there. Maybe I could go to the White House someday on different terms. But Clark's greatest clapback was against those who believe that the emotions showed by Reese and others on LSU were inappropriate in the women's game. That this double standard with men was blatantly obvious was not enough to stop them from saying it. Even the great Charles Barkley, who made his reputation by playing with an unbridled intensity, called the emotions on display 
unfortunate. If Charles Barkley is reaching for the fainting couch, you know that way too many men in the basketball world have lost the plot. To this, Clark said, I'm just lucky enough that I get to play this game and have emotion and wear it on my sleeve and so does everybody else. So that should never be torn down. That should never be criticized because I believe that's what makes this game so fun. That's what draws people to this game. That's how I'm going to continue to play. That's how every girl should continue to play. Clark has provided a lesson here for white athletes. You don't need to play the roles that the media tries to assign to you. You don't need to ally yourself with supporters who previously have shown no interest in you or your sport. You don't need to use your privilege to strike down at your black opponents just because you can. In fact, it takes far more courage to do what Clark did. Support true hoopers and resist all efforts by both the mainstream media and bad actors to divide and damage women's sports. Clark resisted MAGA's siren song. If the sports world doesn't want to be crushed under the weight of disunity and reaction, white athletes will need to play their part, learn from Caitlin Clark, and act accordingly. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. Boom, we are back on the Edge of Sports podcast. You know what? It is my favorite time of year, the end of the NBA regular season, right before the NBA playoffs, the feeling of expectation, but also I love it because it's award season. So let's hit it right off the top. Who else to talk about this with? Then the one and only Jacob Zyron Jake's takes. How you doing, sir? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Doing great, man. So let's start with the big fish and work our way down to the minnows. NBA awards. Most valuable player. Who is your MVP for the 2022-23 season? I mean, there are some pretty good candidates. I mean, you have guys all over the league doing crazy things. I mean, this was just an all-around, like... It was it, a wacky it, year. It, it was a season to remember, that's for sure. And I mean, you have a lot of guys... You could, you could say for this award. I mean, you have guys like Jokic who, you know, did he, did he end up averaging a triple double? I think he did. Uh, I think just shy. Just shy. Still amazing. Yeah, still an amazing year for Jokic. You got guys like Giannis who just dominate the floor offensively and defensively, and then you have the guy who is my MVP, Joel Embiid, who really just had a fantastic year. I mean, he was the most dominant scorer this year as he got the scoring title. He just he just dropped 52 the other night, which was a crazy game if you, if you watched it. Yeah, he scored half his team's points. He did. And I don't know if most of you saw that Doc Rivers interview post-game. Did you see oh, that? Oh, I think I did see that, yeah. Where he was like, I mean, if this guy – but to sum it up, he was basically like, if, if this guy isn't the MVP, then I don't know what – I don't know what the voters are doing. Yeah. That's basically what he said. Well, guess and what? He is a absolutely outstanding player, and he has proved it. Well, from the perspective of Doc Rivers, then I must not know what I'm doing. Because, supposed to mean. because I think Giannis Antetokounmpo is the 2022-23 MVP. And, I mean, that's okay to say because he, I mean, he really did have a great year. He had a historic I, I year for the number Joel one Embiid, team. I mean, Joel with Embiid, Chris Middleton out for almost half the year. I don't know what they're doing with him. I mean, yeah, that was weird. Weird. It's part mean, of another weird season. But I mean, yo, I mean, sorry. Yeah, I love you. I, I love Embiid. You're Embiid shot the best in his career. Like he he's never shot better than this before. Wow. Yeah. Hell of a player. Yeah. I saw this interesting thing. He'll be the first center to lead the league in scoring for consecutive years since Bob McAdoo. Wow, that's an amazing stat. Yes, it is. 
All right, let's go to rookie of the year right now. Who do, who is your rookie of the this year? Is, this should be unanimous by every single person who watches basketball. I mean, this is Paulo Banchero's award this year. Yep, Paulo Banchero. An outstanding year. He met, I think it's safe to say he met expectations because I mean, if you didn't expect him to do this, and I don't know what I don't know what to, I don't know what you were watching in college, but yeah, I mean, I was so impressed though with how quick he was to adapt to NBA life. Like one of the best players on his team, game one. Yeah. Very impressive. Averaged, I think, just over 20 points a game. Mm -hmm. He averaged a good amount of rebounds for the forward. I mean, he he didn't shoot the ball like great, but it was still better than anybody else this season. Well, I want to name a couple other rookies, though, worth Mm -hmm. pointing out. Jalen Williams. Yeah, Jalen Williams is going to be a great player. Uh, he already is a great player. Chet Holmgren, even though he's injured, I mean, he's... Yeah, Chet Holmgren is someone I'm so excited to see on the court. Mm -hmm. And you know what? Jabari Smith Jr. played well the last couple weeks of the year after a horrible start Mm -hmm. to the year. And Jaden Ivey finished the year averaging 20 a game over the last, like, month and a half. I think I picked him at the start of the year for rookie of the year. Yeah, I know. I did. I I don't know. I still don't hate that pick because he had a a really solid season, and he's going to be a star in future years. And frankly, I only give this award to Banquero uh, because uh, he was the he best from start. And he was also the best from start to finish. Mm-hmm. Um, Jalen Williams, I mean, on the OKC Thunder, at t- by the end of the year, was doing all-star things for yeah. a competitive team. And mm-hmm. that's not... A team that's going to be in the plan. Yeah, because Dallas... Dallas disrespected the game you know how we always talk about you got to respect the game the dallas mavericks disrespected the game and they have angered the basketball gods and within four years luka Doncic won't be on that team there i just said it okay he's a smart guy yeah i know bail on that baby depoy defensive player of the year who you got i think this is a very competitive award i mean there's two guys that you could easily give this award to. I, w- I won't be mad at you if you say Brooke Lopez because he had a great year and he was he, he was amazing defensively. But I just think Jaron Jackson Jr. deserves this award. I mean, he was he was the way he protected the paint was just absolutely amazing. outstanding. I mean, average three blocks, average three blocks a game. Wasn't really that much of a rebounder whatsoever for his size, but still, I mean, he was absolutely unreal. Yeah, I can't disagree with that as a great pick, although I would go with Brooke Lopez only because... He didn't play that many games. Yes, exactly. Jaron Jackson Jr., not a lot of games and a lot of foul trouble. So to me, the, what's the most important ability? What do I always say? Availability. Availability. So Brooke Lopez, my defensive player of the year. Okay, this is an interesting one. Most improved player. Who do you have? I have a player who had an absolutely outstanding jump that I think close to nobody expected. I mean, everybody has like, but before this season, I feel like everybody kind of like written out this guy's script for the rest of his career. I mean, he had a good year with the Bulls like early mm. in his career, but then he just he kind of went on a slow decline. And then with the Cavaliers, he had like a pretty bad season. But then this year, I mean, Wow, Laurie Markkinen. Laurie Markkinen. What a player. I mean, he had such an insanely catastrophic jump Yeah. from this year compared to past years. I mean, he was a 26-9 and guy. Like, I would have believed that you you could never um, get me to believe that he would have done a season like this. Yeah, what was he, 25 and 10? 25 points, 10 yeah, boards? Yeah, 20, 26 and 9. Wow. While in the past seasons, he's been averaging like 14 a game on five rebounds, shooting. Shoot, he didn't shoot bad, but it's just, I mean. And, he, dude, he was almost 50, 40, 90. Like, wow. he, was, he was 50, 39, 87.5. I mean, that's insane for a player of his size. I mean, he's just. And he made the all-star team. He did make he was an all-star starter, if I'm not mistaken. That is correct. And you know what? My guy didn't make the all-star team, but he should have. And I'm going with Jalen Brunson as my most improved player because he was playing in the thick of a playoff race all year, unlike Markinen, and he was doing 
it while also playing alongside an all-star player in Julius Randle. A lot tougher to find your shots and make your mark when you're playing with somebody like Julius Randle. So no, it's okay. The, the fact that Brunson was able to carve out this space for himself to make the leap from very solid ascending NBA player to a star under the New York lights. Ooh, that gets me to Jalen Brunson as my most improved player. I can't say I agree with that, but I don't, I'm I'm not mad at that pick because he did have a really huge jump from last season. I mean, he really just came into his own as a player. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Amen. All right. Are you ready for the next one? Sixth man of the year. Sixth man of the year. Who do you got? My sixth man of the year was a very key player to this team's success. He he's had very good seasons in the past, but this year he you know he was a bench guy. I think this is the first time in his career he came off the bench besides his first year. And I mean, if I feel like if he he got more minutes, I think this would kind of be undisputed mm-hmm. to to be to be honest. But yeah, I think uh, Malcolm Brogdon was a really key player to to the Celtics' success. I mean, he he had very similar stats to another guy who was heavily heavily competing for this award and um Emmanuel Quickly. But mm. I just feel like if you if you look at the stats, I mean, of course the stats, you know, they don't. I mean, the eye test is also a very important factor into this. Mm-hmm. But I just feel like the way that uh. The way that Malcolm Brogdon was shooting um, in the field, like I just feel like that kind of like gave him the leap over quickly, in my in my opinion. Yeah, you make some good logical points. I was going with IQ Emmanuel quickly, like so many of the basketball commentary at R, but you make a strong case, man. I'm being pushed towards Brogdon. I always felt like Quickly's best games actually were when Brunson was sitting. And he started, and that would made such a big impression on people. But, yeah, I'm going to go with Malcolm Brogdon, who I think would be a starter on any other team in the NBA, could conceivably start for a championship-level team, oh, yeah. comes off the bench for the Celtics. One of the few 50-40-90 players in history, by the way. Mm-hmm. A lot of people yeah. don't know that. So I love your Brogdon pick. Let's mm-hmm. roll with that. All right, I believe we have one more, and that's Coach of the Year. Mm-hmm. To me, this was very easy, but me too. go for it, buddy. Um, I mean, this guy, he he truly led a team that has been heavily disappointing for decades, and he took them on his back and carried them to a three-seed in the West, the Sacramento Kings, Mike Brown. I mean, that team, you know, like they are a very talented group of group of people. I mean, you know, DeMontis Sabonis, De'Aaron Fox leading that group. And I mean, to see them succeed, I mean, I'm not a Kings fan myself, but it really does like, it, it, it makes me happy to see them, to see them succeed, you know? I mean, they might be a, uh, I'm not sure what their final record is going to be, but they're going to be, if they, if they don't have 50 wins, then they're going to be damn close. Yeah, you know what? I mean, the toughest thing from a coaching perspective is to take a losing atmosphere to a winning atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And that's why it has to go to Mike Brown. Actually, I think this is the one award, even more than Bancaro for Rookie of the Year, that I think should be unanimous. Well, I do think that there are guys that you could say, like uh, um, the Celtics coach Joe Missoula. Joe Missoula. Missoula is a decent and interesting because choice. He was put into a situation where, you know, of course he he had a good team to start off with, but he was he's never been a head coach before. He is shoved into a head coaching role that he didn't expect to put to be put in. Nobody he's knew, younger than Al Horford. No, nobody knew his capabilities as a coach, and he came in and led them to a two seed. So Amazing. I, I I do think that if you do choose him then I wouldn't be too upset, but I, I do think that. Uh... Do you want to hear something that seems hilarious now that people were saying at the start of the year mm-hmm. that the Sacramento Kings were jinxed because they made one of what's going to be go down as one of the worst trades in history by letting go of Tyrese Halliburton to stay with De'Aaron Fox at point and bring in Dom Sabonis. And I got to say, I love Tyrese Halliburton. Lo- love him, love him, love him, but... 
Sabonis is the truth, man. He is. De'Aaron Fox is the truth, man. And Mike Brown unlocked all of that and got rid of all the bad mojo that surrounds that club. So yeah. he should get the man, credit be, for that. That should be a great year for your great team for years to come. Oh, I think so. I mean, people don't realize Sabonis' final numbers. I mean, he was like a Good 20 God. and 12 guy. With six De'Aaron, assists? De'Aaron Fox was like, I think seven. Seven. And De'Aaron Fox oh, was like, God. De'Aaron Fox, great score. They have also additional contribution from guys like Harrison Barnes, you know? Yeah. And just a really well. Well organized well, team. team, yeah, very well built. So yeah, and you know what? Hmm. We only think they're a well organized team because they're winning. And I think one of the only reasons they're winning, in addition to Sabonis, who I really do think is a special All NBA level player, uh, is Mike Brown. Mm-hmm. So credit where to you know I met him once, got to have dinner with him. Wow. Yeah, that didn't impress you as much as I thought it would. No, um, it all right, well. This was a good segment here. Jacob is wielding a baseball bat at the moment. He's very into baseball season, so I'm going to go before I get clocked in the in the eye by mistake. Yo, Jacob, thanks so much for joining us on the Edge of Sports Podcast. Of course. Well, that's all the time we have this week. Thank you so much to Teresa Runstedler. Thank you so much to the sponsor of this podcast, uh, The Nation Magazine. Thank you so much to David Tigaboo for his production skills. Thanks so much, Jake. Now he's 14. I got to force him to find the time. He's like, oh, I got to be on the podcast with dad. But that's okay because that's it. The family that pods together uh, rides hot rods together. I don't know. I just made that up. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.